0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this This is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol radio at aol.com slash podcasting this is security now with steve gibson episode 167 for october 23rd 2008 listener feedback number 52 Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com and by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com/securitynow. And by, go to my PC. Wherever you go, access your PC and all of your files, programs and email remotely. With go to my PC for a free trial of this award winning service. Visit go to my slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover all the latest security news and give you some in- inside understanding about what it means and what it is. There he is, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Gibson in his beautiful lair. It looks like a library. For those of you who watch on video, you'll see Steve is surrounded by books. Are those all programming books, Steve? I love books. Yeah, there's, there's some
1: software, but largely programming books. I have an unopened copy of Windows 3.1. <laughs> and, uh, Why did you bo- open it? <laughs> there, there's a, a bottle of Cabernet from Microsoft that was uh, given to me. It's etched uh oh, wow. bottle that I will never open. It's sort of a collector's cool. item. Yeah. Other random little paraphernalia from... From long gone days,
0: you know it's funny because if I turn the camera the other way, what I'm looking at is a very similar bookshelf filled filled with books. So uh, and and many of them are programming books as well and computer stuff. And I even have, uh, thanks to um, Paul Thorat, who sent it to me a copy of Lotus Symphony for the Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look at that. There's the there's the Y, and I see it right on the top there. Yeah, yeah. Lotus Symphony for the Macintosh with and it's on floppies. Remember yes. That? Yes, yes, yes. When you could actually fit something useful on a floppy. <laughs> well, there's like 40 floppies. Yeah, you know, and and now I'm looking. It, it really is mind-boggling. I just got a 32 gigabyte SD card for my camera from Kingston. Thirty. T- you know, we're we're so uh, nowadays now you mean cavalier CF SD SD card. Wow, we're so cavalier about gigs you know, gigs. My new G1 phone has a little micro SD. I mean that's tiny. It's size smaller than my pinky fingernail and that's 8 gigs. Wow. Gigs mean nothing anymore. You know, and but when you and I were coming up, oh, and in fact a friend of
1: mine sent me a very cool thing he found on ThinkGeek. It is a it's a it's a dock cradle, but it's for docking a an, an SATA drive. So it's got a large port, and you literally, you just, you plant, because SATA drives yeah. are hot-swappable, you li- you literally just plant the drive into this thing, and it plugs it in. And it's got both a USB 2.0 and an eSATA interface, so you can, you know, do full high-performance drive interaction. So, you know, here's, hard, hard drives are have come down in price to that level, where it's like, oh, I'll just plug an
0: eSATA drive in here. Steve, I it. have six of those. <laughs> and I buy 750 gig drives for under a hundred bucks, by the dozen, and then I pop it in. And That's what we record all our video on. I pop it in at the end of the week. I pop it out. Uh, you know, Tony's got one on his machine. Dane's got one on his machine. Even our office manager has one on her machine.
1: We oh, any- mean the eSATA, docs? yeah.
0: And anybody oh, cool because we just it's easy to put eSATA on these new machines. Yeah, because so, just putting an external port on there and uh and and any any of these drives they're just bare bones drives i've got them on my shelf now starting to line up anybody can come in what do we need oh yeah yeah that's on uh drive four they'll pop it in it's amazing now i just dane just handed me i I, only people on video are going to see this this is 16 kilobytes of memory for a data general nova machine that is it is the size is framed it's the size of a um well, a framed picture, you know, like twelve by twelve picture, sixteen, not megabytes, not gigabytes, kilobytes, of memory for a Data General Nova. So that's uh, forty years ago, thirty years ago. Wow, unbelievable! Yeah, <laughs> where we have we I've have pro- come so far. I programmed a Data General.
1: Did you? Yep, the Nova and the Supernova. Those were beautiful machines. This was uh, this was a mini computer, right? Yeah, mini computer had big. 19 inch boards um that that slid out you know like it was 19 inch rack mount well that's what this so must I, be then
0: this is 19 inches yeah yeah and so that was a board of core probably core memory it's core memory there it is yeah, yeah. Wow. um <laughs> and and probably hand a wire wrapped i mean i don't think this is uh this is stamped out this looks like all the solders are by hand and the wires are visible I mean, it's just amazing what's changed uh-huh. just amazing we live in interesting times. So what, Ed, what are we going to talk about today? Well, today,
1: episode 167 is a Q&A, our 52nd Q&A, questions and answers our I mean, That's hard from to believe, listeners. too. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. All right. That'll yeah. be fun.
1: we got some good ones. We've got a couple long ones and some short ones, and so uh, I think we the, some, a nice lineup of questions.
0: We'll get to that in just a second. Also, uh, any uh, security news and updates from previous shows, but first, yep. I want to mention our good sponsors. The folks from Citrix, we talk about them all the time. They make Go to My PC now faster than ever. The latest version of Go to My PC is remarkable. If you've ever used remote access software, I think probably the first thing that there are two things that come to mind when you install remote access software. First of all, eh, it's a little oh, it's slow. You know, it's not. I I want it to be more resp- I want it to feel like I'm really using the machine. That's reaction number one. The other one is, man, try to get through the firewall and the configuring configuration for the router and all that. It's just you know, it's and, and security issues. None of this applies to go to my PC. It is as fast and it responsive as, as if you're actually there. That's cuz Citrix is the expert in remote access. Nobody knows more about making Windows work remotely than Citrix. Uh, they they did Windows Remote Desktop. They've done it they've done it all since the very beginning. And secure absolutely 128-bit encryption point to point so you can use it at an open Wi-Fi hotspot completely securely just like a VPN. No configuration issues at all because of their unique three-way system. You know, they go to a central server, so you're always, it's always outbound access. There's no inbound access, so there's no firewall issues. It's easy to use, easy to set up, just two minutes, a couple of clicks of the mouse. You don't need to call the IT department. You're going to love it. PC World's World Class Award for Best Remote Access Software, year after year after year, award-winning, and now I want you to try it absolutely free. Here's the deal you go to go tomypc.com/security now g o t o m y p c.com/security now unlimited month of go to My pc they know and i and i agree this is the only way that we're going to convince you that it really is every bit as fast and easy as i'm talking about just try it absolutely free access your programs your files your email network resources you can even drag and drop files from your remote computer to your local computer Works anywhere you can get online, even with a Mac. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Try it now for 30 days absolutely free. I use it all the time. It is a it is a huge convenience. You're going to want to use it too. Go to mypc.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now. All right, Steve, any uh, updates from last week's episodes? Or? Well, it's been quiet on
1: the security front. Um, there is Phew. another Mac update. I did get um, one just last night, yeah yep that one um it there were it was updating once again a bunch of security vulnerabilities in third party components that are bundled in with the mac os you know various um open source unix gizmos, but also there were some remote code execution vulnerabilities, so I wanted to let our Mac people know i mean last week when we recorded this, I had a major update. this one was small this was i think thirty one megabytes, so not nearly as big. Um, but you know you want to just check on uh, check for software updates, and Mac users will find something there
0: yeah
1: um, also um, several of our listeners commented on my mentioning about application frameworks and the c s r f topic from last week the uh, the cross site request forgery, and then wanted to mention that Ruby on Rails does have built in CR, C-S-R-F um, uh, spoof defeating logic and really? it's enabled by default and it's been there since version 2.0 very interesting so, Rails
0: is used on a lot of websites it's a very quick prototyping system uh, very easy to use and a lot of web 2.0 sites use it so that's good right. news right and so it, so th- this problem was
1: recognized and forms automatically include a a pseudo random token that must be returned when the form is submitted. And just doing that prevents the blind, the blind request forgery that we were talking about last week. Excellent. So I wanted to acknowledge that anybody who is, I mean, it's a, even a reason to use Ruby on rails. In fact, um, if, if you are up in the air about um, what framework you're, you're choosing, all other things being considered, this is a good thing to have just to keep you know anyone from messing around with your site. I'd be,
0: a, I'd be willing to guess before you get flooded by emails from uh, everybody else that other frameworks, if they don't already do that, will do. that. That's an easy thing to implement. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I had
1: uh, one fun spin write anecdote from someone named actually a listener of ours, Calvin, and I ran across this when I was going through the the mail for for Q and A. So I know that he's from St. John, New Brunswick. Uh, and the subject was Save the Last Dance for Spinwright. <laughs> and he said, Hi, Stephen Leo. I've always been a, the tech guy for a friend of mine living in Alberta, mainly because I lived only about four blocks away for the longest time. However, about six months ago, I moved to the opposite end of the country. Well, recently I convinced my friend to buy a MacBook as her old laptop was starting to fail. She transferred her music which she uses for youth dances at the Boys and Girls Club onto an external hard drive to transfer over. Hmm. So she apparently put it from, you know, from whatever laptop she was using onto the external drive, and then she was going to plug that into her MacBook. This is when the emails started coming. When she plugged the external drive into the MacBook, she could hear a faint clicking sound. Uh Uh-oh. But the drive would never actually mount. I arranged for her to courier the drive out to me and I set to work, as I only had two weeks to get this figured out. I first tried plugging the drive into the USB port on my laptop. However, I encountered the same issue she had, just repeated clicking. That's when I took the external casing apart, that is, the the case of the external hard drive. Luckily enough, it was a laptop SATA drive, so I plugged it into my laptop's drive bay and booted Spinrite. When I launched Spinrite, I was met with the ominous red warning screen saying that the drive was in danger of imminent failure. That's something that Spinrite is able to detect. I, I'm, I'm, I've stepped off of, of, of reading this for a minute just to tell our, our listeners. That's something that Spinrite is able to determine immediately by pulling the, the, the smart interface on the drive and checking to see whether the drive thinks it's okay. So even the drive knew it had a problem, although unfortunately through the USB interface, that was not, that information was not being communicated. So uh, continuing with Calvin's note, with this in mind, I launched Spinrite at level two. After about 11 hours or so, Spinrite finally finished its business, proudly displaying about 25 green R's, meaning recovered data, showing all recovered sectors. I then booted to a Linux Live CD, mounted the drive, and copied the files to a USB stick to send back to my friend. Needless to say, the dance is saved, sparing my friend hours of CD ripping and recovery of songs for which she only had digital copies. Thank you so much for your amazing product and an incredibly informative netcast, keeping my propeller beanie wound up.
0: You know she's uh, uh or he's very she's very lucky to have him because he's obviously a major geek, smart enough to do things like use a Linux live CD to recover the files and things. Right. Um, obviously, she had a good a good friend. That's a nice story. Hey, before uh, before we get to our questions, I have one story I wanted to mention. You, you, you don't you're not a baseball fan, are you? Uh what? Base, <laughs> baseball? You ever hear that? <laughs> it's this game. <laughs> These guys, grown men, they go out with a stick and they whack a ball around. It's really fun. The World Series is coming up. In just <laughs> just a little bit. But the American League Championship Series was a very exciting playoff between uh, the Red Sox and the Tampa Bay Rays. And uh, Red Sox had come back in Game 4 and in Game 6. They won again, and it was the very, you know, they put it all the way to Game 7, the final and deciding game to see who wins the pennant and goes on to the World Series. You, I tune in TBS, uh, and they're in reruns. They have some technical difficulty. The first two innings of the game, they miss. They miss. They can't... And I'm going to go on Twitter, and people are howling. I mean, this is a big deal. Uh, but they're running some crap rerun, and uh, and I'm watching it because I figure, well, they're going to get it back pretty soon, and I want to I see the game. It's an exciting game. And on comes, I don't, I don't remember the name of the company, and if, if I did, I wouldn't give them a plug, but on comes an ad for a company. I'm sure this isn't a very good product. They claim to, you run this product on Windows, and it speeds up Windows and, and gets and gets everything going faster, right? And they show, it's kind of a funny ad because it's mostly Macintoshes with Windows screens CG'd in, showing <laughs> blue screens of death. And then they run the software, oh, it works. And so they at the end of the, the, the ad, they say, go to our website now and download this software. Well, I had to go, right? But I think what they weren't planning on is running in the Game 7 of the American League Championship Series, because I go to the website, nothing. They DDoS themselves with this ad. And they did not come up for another half an hour. All that potential revenue gone. Just shot P- people who couldn't get on the website.
1: I thought, Man, well, I'm coming to think of it, that had to have been, a, have been a, an expensive commercial to run. too. Well,
0: I think they were getting it for nothing because they thought they bought the Steve Harvey comedy show. Ah, uh, but they, but they're going crazy in Atlanta saying quick, throw something on. I know right, I've been right. there. Throw right. something on. We got nothing from uh, the game. What are we going to do? And so they're running whatever they got, including this ad that I'm sure these guys never expected to be on in a major ball game. Just a word of warning, you know, make sure if you're advertising a product that speeds up your computer access in the internet, make sure you have enough web server capacity before you, before you get the ad on the air. Oh, sad. Well, let, let's take a break. We're going to come back. We got we got a dozen great questions people have uh, of course accumulated to ask for Steve Gibson for his suggestions. Right now though, I want to mention our sponsor audible.com very quickly. Audible is the folks are the folks who give us these great audiobooks. Um, you know, it really is a revolution. we were talking about how memory now has, you know, you get gigabytes. You couldn't really do audiobooks when a floppy disk was 1.4 What is it? 1.44 megabytes. 1.44 meg. You can't, an audio book, you know, they're a hundred megabytes for decent quality. You couldn't do it uh, until MP3s came along, until CDs and large hard drives came along, until portable players came along. But now that they're here, we're in the middle of a revolution. And if you've ever, you know, if you love to read, I love to read. If you love to learn with nonfiction and history, if you love to be swept away with escapism and science fiction, mystery, thrillers, romance. These books on audible.com are going to transport you. And if there are times when you're stuck in the car on a nasty, miserable commute and the traffic's not moving, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. You know, when I was driving to San Francisco, it never fazed me because I say, ah, more time to listen to my book. I'm loving this. It takes you away. And that's where Audible has just been a, a wonderful technology. They are the ones. Really, they're the, they're the best. You da- you pick a book from their 50,000-plus titles. You download it within a minute or two, depending, of course, on your broadband access. You're going to have that book. You can listen to it on your computer. You can burn it to a CD. You can put it on almost any portable device. And and if you love science fiction, you're going to love audible.com. I want to give you a chance to listen to any book. Get a, a free credit toward a book at no cost to you. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Uh, I'm going to give you a great science fiction recommendation. One of the things they've been doing in the science fiction section is they get these guest editors and great sci-fi writers picking the books that they love that change their lives. Spider Robinson is right now the guest editor. He writes, with the arrival of MP3 and other compression technologies that squeeze even a large book onto a single disc or hundreds of books into an iPod, the audiobook has finally come into its own and not a moment too soon. More and more great titles, and he uh, is recommending some of the best, and this is a great one. It's just a short one. uh, Harlan Ellison's, I know you've read this, Steve, Repent Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Yep. One of the great short science fiction novels of all time. If you haven't read it, it's a must read, and the best part about this is read by Harlan Ellison and Robin Williams, so (laughs) this is such a great book. Now, it's only 35 minutes, so I'm sure you're going to want to pick some other things as well, but just... This will give you a sense of, of the, you know, I just want you to listen to one book. That's why we give you this one for free, just to get a sense of how this could change your life. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. I recommend, repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Take a look at it. I think you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. It's, it's one of the classics by one of the great writers of science fiction. And I can't imagine a better dramatization than Harlan Ellison and Robin Williams doing this audiblepodcast.com slash Now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now show. All right, Mr. Stephen Gibson. It is time, my friend, to delve into the questions, the myriad, myriad questions from our listeners. They're dying for your answer. Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. <laughs> like Karnak. Like Karnak the Magnificent. These questions have been sitting on Funkin' Wagnall's porch in a mayonnaise jar for three weeks. Listeners, Colin Williams, well, this everybody wanted to know this one. Dave McKenzie, Warren Matthews, Canuck Geek, Dullin Panuru, Renee, Rick E., Igor David Schneider, Pete Lasanti, and many others. Yep. Ask this question, and I'm really glad they did because I'd Leo Laporte to this list. We've seen this from Elcomsoft yep. report that WPA and WPA2 Wi Fi may no longer be secure. What's the story, Steve? Totally bogus yes! report. Yes, that's what I said. Yes, I I, I I was I I saw this news story and I knew that we would get these questions. I yes, talked and on fact, the radio show and I just it, in it, fact pisses me off, frankly.
1: Yeah, it was really, really, really bad. Um, those are just the names of the first few people. <laughs> yeah, starting on October 10th, who when, when this when this report came out, unfortunately, of course, it got picked up by Slashdot. <sighs> yep, and most irresponsibly. Um the well-known SC magazine, a, a good security magazine, I remember picking up a copy when I was at the RSA convention. Um, they carried a story which really inflamed this whole issue. Okay, so basically what, what Elcomsoft has come up with is not unexpected. They're using the extremely high power integer engine inherent in state-of-the-art. GPUs, the graphics, uh, the graphics processing units in NVIDIA display cards. Mm -hmm. They're using those to accelerate, um, basically, um, brute force encryption attacks. Right. And and they give many examples in their flyer of different sorts of passwords that can be cracked. And and what's most telling is that it's ElcomSoft themselves are. Only billing this, for example, as a high-powered way to maybe check for weak passwords in a corporate environment. They're only claiming that that two of these cards, two NVIDIA cards and their software in a fast machine, would break Wi-Fi encryption up to a hundred times faster. Well, okay. I don't doubt that at all. Except that it's already it's like 10 to 38 times (laughs) harder to do anything with, you know, with a good random password. Now it's, they they don't explain whether they're just brute forcing the 128 bit encryption or whether they're, they're brute forcing ASCII, which is then, um, which is then hashed using the, the WPA scheme into a 128 bit key. So, So it's not exactly clear what it is they're doing, but but the problem is that this SC magazine story, which got picked up and then which of course the register in the UK picked up and then Slashdot did, but you know, the guy who wrote this S the SC security sc magazine story said,
0: Oh, this is the end of Wi Fi security uh, as we know it. You know, and the other thing that pissed me off is instead of saying a hundred times faster, he said Ten thousand percent faster. Well, and the yes, and the
1: Moron! way you, the way you could theoretically get that because this is also a distributed, a, a distributed attack tool. If you had, if you had ten thousand computers, each with two of these in a huge network, yeah. <laughs> each of them a hundred times faster than if they were just doing it in software alone. You know, okay, yeah. So then you could get it up to ten thousand percent. Faster, But even that doesn't matter because, you know, if you have followed our advice and have a strong, really, you know, really robust WPA key, which you should have in any event,
0: then this doesn't help you at all. I mean, this if in other words, if you use your special passwords program to generate a 64 character random string, yes, you're you're still, you know, so what if it's a 100 times faster? It's not even you know two orders of magnitude compared to infinity.
1: So now you're down to several tens of billions of millennia, yeah.
0: rather than ten thousand, several tens of billions of millennia. I, I was really shocked at. I can understand the mainstream press getting sucked in by this. I was really shocked that secu- that people at Slashdot and scmac they should know better. Yeah, well, especially when
1: even the even the original report from ElcomSoft makes no claims. About its ability to crack Wi-Fi, it yeah. does, I mean, I've read the whole press release. They're saying a hundred times faster. It's like, okay, I believe that, but that doesn't help you. It doesn't in any way weaken WPA because it was already strong enough to withstand a factor of a hundred gain in cracking. I mean, and besides, a hundred's not that much. If 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 WPA weren't strong enough. To withstand a hundredfold increase, it wouldn't be strong enough to to withstand a onefold increase. Yeah, because again, a hundred
0: isn't a huge number. No, you know that's I think why they couched it in percent, which because it makes it sound like it's so much more. But even then, it's not a significant. Uh, I yeah, I'm really. I, I guess I've been doing this show long enough. I've learned a thing or two, and I was I debunked. I had the same debunking yep. uh, reaction uh, on the radio show. It's just but but of course it scares the heck out of people yeah well
1: now, because we we have seen situations um there was a there there was a report recently where the encryption scheme used for car the, the the remote car keys had been cracked and in fact it has been and it was kept secret for for two decades and it it leaked out and some cryptographers Got a hold of it, and it turns out that un, and under certain circumstances, it's possible if you receive several successive outputs um, to, to determine the master key in, in the keys we use for unlocking our cars and, and garage door openers and things. But, but even then, the only good attack is a so-called side channel attack that we've talked about before, where you measure the power being consumed by the transmitter. Well, okay, how how do you measure the power being consumed by the transmitter someone's holding in their hand, you know, across the street? So so just receiving the radio, it turns out, is still very secure. And, and so people get these stories mixed up because they're technical and we end up, you know,
0: um, upsetting people needlessly. Right, right. Uh, you know, one thing that it does raise, though, is this issue of... Um, you could sit out on the curb with with a wireless connection and collect a lot of data and then go home and analyze it you're not doing this on the curb and i guess and is that right well yes the 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 LCOM soft or any any and we've any talked about
1: force. we we we've talked about the only as far as we know the only vulnerability in wpa which has now been i mean seriously reviewed right. by the world's top cryptographers The only weakness we know of is a brute force attack, where and you only need a few packets. You don't need much. Although, if you were going to, if if you wanted to crack the security, you would be wanting to suck in a bunch. But then you'd only analyze a few. So you'd say maybe take ten minutes
0: worth of data. Would that be
1: enough? Well, uh, half a second worth of data. (laughs) Okay, would be enough because because the goal is to find a key by by trying them at random that happens to decrypt a couple packets. But it
0: does when, it is a it is a form of vulnerability because unlike, you know, if you want to brute force for instance uh, SSH to break into my server, you you can't really automate that. It it slows you down. You can only do one try every few seconds. But this does at least mean you can get a batch of data, take it home, and you can throw a lot of hardware at it and hammer it. Uh and and when you're not playing,
1: you know, uh uh whatever your world video of, game world of, of Warcraft, yeah. world of Warcraft you can you know idle your computer <laughs> right. trying to crack some right. Wi-Fi so and, you can
0: do it at your leisure which is a little different than a lot of brute force cracking well for example the WEP
1: crack because of the vulnerabilities in WEP the pre the prior generation encryption WEP you anyone can crack that in a minute sitting on so, the curb yeah. you know, yeah. that's just broken now yeah but but WPA is still safe as long as you're immune to br- brute force attacks. As long as you use a really good key. So again, grc.com slash passwords. Breathe safe. And we will give you a good strong key.
0: Nothing to fear. Uh, Mike in Toronto, Canada needs a public VPN service. We get this question fairly frequently as well. I hope you're reading this, Steve. I'm looking for... (laughs) Yes, he is. I'm looking for a VPN service for surfing the web. The problem is I tried strong VPN, but the service is very poor. Could you tell me or ask your readers if there's any good VPN service in the USA? I'm scared to get another one, fearing getting ripped off
1: again. And this was an easy one um, I know of, and you and I both used, and, and while I was using it, we, you know, I had a trial subscription that the owner of the service gave both of us, Leo, and that was Hotspot VPN.
0: Yep, and it's 10 bucks a month, 8 dollars It's very affordable.
1: Yep. And it works. I mean, their servers are strong. It's a standard. They, they just use OpenVPN. So when you download the client from them, this installs OpenVPN into, for example, your laptop with it all pre-configured and ready to go. And it's, so it's simple to use. And uh, I was while I was using it, I was very impressed with it. I had no trouble
0: with it. Uh, And there are others, but yeah, I think that's a very good one that I would I would highly recommend. Um, You do you do get some slowdown by using a VPN service. I mean, it's not you know you have to go through their server, right? Right. Yes, you are, and yes, and you also need to
1: trust them because remember, just like Tor, where you're using essentially other servers out of which your traffic is being emitted, um, there's inherently a traffic concentrating aspect to that. Right. So so you know somebody could be looking at all of the traffic coming in and out of the hotspot VPN network figuring that maybe it's higher value because somebody wants to encrypt what they're doing with you know in, in their local connection right so there's some 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 traffic concentration consequence of that but you know for email and and web surfing and so forth it's uh, it's certainly safe
0: and i wouldn't i wouldn't dream of doing anything that you needed to be uh, safe uh, in a hotel, especially a hotel. No, no, a no. Hotspot. I mean, these things are risky. So you do yep. need something like this. Um, Bruce uh, Kinkalo or Kincholo in Denver, Colorado, USA, says he just wants to plug in uh, and turn on and tune in and drop out. No, no, just plug in. Hi, Steve. Thanks to you and Leah for the great work you do with Security Now. I love the show. My question is about power line networking. These devices are newly available from a security point of view. Is the encryption used sufficient to prevent eavesdropping by others? You know, I haven't tried this. They kept foisting it on us uh, years ago. And I think now the new power line networking actually is pretty reliable pretty fast. And the good news is it is very secure. Oh, that's neat. So they encrypt the data.
1: And they do. Well, yes. And, you know, we've seen keyboards that said they encrypt the data. And it turns out they're XORing an 8-bit byte with it i just saw a hack of a wired keyboard from 20 feet away (laughs) yeah yeah um the good news is i did a check uh all of these come from the same company and this company understands security they understand that if they're sticking your network on your your wires and for example you're in an apartment building so that your wires are the same as your neighbor's wires um, they better get the encryption right. Yeah. And they looked like they did a, I mean, I haven't done an absolute full security analysis, but in answering, in order to find an answer to the question, I did look around. I took a look at the security and the, and the technology and they were using all the right words. And it really looked like, you know, they understood they had to get this right. And they did. Good.
0: That's excellent news.
1: But I would tell Bruce, yes, it's safe to use, you know, power line networking.
0: Very good. Lance Reichert in uh, Green, New York, wonders what his corporate security people are meaning when they say, well, let me read it to you. A quiz circulated by my company's security department says, filling out online forms like web questionnaires or registrations to receive work-related magazines, for instance, when you're doing it from work, is a serious risk. Quote, every time you log onto a web page, you create a scenario hackers could potentially use to crack your employer's networks. Huh? Every time? If this is so, how is anyone going to safely conduct any business at all on the web? Are they talking about avoiding shady offers? Are they talking about exploits through well-known, well-managed sites such as EE Times Online? I thought that was a neat question because you can sort of see a little bit of FUD
1: spreading. Um, I would say that his particular corporate security people are are a little over-concerned, though it's It's probably a good thing to you know from a from a standpoint of educating the employees of the company to sort of give them a sense of of you know things you do on the net are not completely without risk um and I think he summed it up nicely it is you know these are what we've talked about we've talked about how the the number one attack mode now is going to bad websites with browsers containing vulnerabilities, and I guess that's that's uh being redundant to say browsers containing vulnerabilities um they all do apparently um from everything we've seen some, some more than others but <laughs> yeah. well and vulnerabilities known or or not yet right that's the dis- problem you, know, you can't discovered guarantee discovered or not yet discovered yeah, right. um and so you know the the the, the problem is that that some bad websites can do this. Now we've also seen situations and, and he and he refers to the EE Times online. It might very well be that the EE Times online webmaster and company are above reproach. They're, you know, integrity and would never deliberately hurt anybody, but their server could have a vulnerability that allows people to change their web pages and put malicious code on them and we also see that happening all the time so it's you can't you can't just trust a highly credible site not to do something bad to you because highly credible sites are being infected because while they may be credible they're not keeping their own security up right. as much as they should right. you know they might they, they might be you know, have, have a framework which is using SQL database on the back end in order to in order to generate their web pages and have uh, you know an exposed SQL port with a vulnerability that allows somebody to get in and and take them over. So you know, and you know, there are, we we've talked about various types of exploits of this nature. So you know, it's true that the web is not completely safe. Um, I sort of think that the corporate IT people are maybe making a little more than this than they should but it's certainly something to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah, I guess it is a it is a good thing to say, you know, be careful out there. Yes, don't don't, I don't don't think assume. EE times. Well, you're right. You can't you can't assume. Yeah. Even ED times would be safe. I mean So what do you do? Cuz he he has the point that it kind of makes the web kind of useless if you can't fill out forms.
1: Well, um, you turn off scripting, Leo. Ah, yes. Oh, that. Sorry about that.
0: Well, you, you know what? I'm coming more and more on your side on this one because it really, it, it seems to be the only thing to do that, that secures you against most of these exploits. And thing, something like NoScript for Firefox yep. um, makes it very easy. I mean, you just, you know, when you get to a site, you want to, you, the problem is, okay, now you go to the EE Times site, and I guarantee you they use JavaScript in some context. And you want to and you want to use the site. You're going to turn it on, but now, now you're vulnerable to an exploit right. they may not have known about in the form, right? So, so you're still kind of stuck.
1: Um, we will be talking soon. In fact, we're going to have the author soon um, of um, Sandboxy, which because, is a great
0: program. Yeah.
1: Yes, a large number of of the um, of the people who hang out in GRC's news groups are I mean, they're using sandboxy, they love it because it sort of is a lightweight sandbox. And I've had some dialogue with the author and I'm just been waiting for a, a, a window of opportunity to to get him on and talk about it because it is a great program and it does have the advantage of, of putting some protection around your browser to keep your browser from being able to do anything to your system mm-hmm. that you don't want it to. And so, you know, it's you know the 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 heavyweight approach is to use a full VM, a full virtual machine system like Parallels
0: or, or VMware um, or... or. Um, but they raise this interesting point. You're on the corporate network now. Even if you're using a virtual machine, can't something bad spread through the network? Yeah.
1: Um,
0: you, go, you really want to isolate it from the network, too. And of course, you can't isolate a browser from the
1: network. You can't. Got to be on the. It's got to be on the network to browse. We're screwed, basically. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs>
0: it's not good. You just. What do you pray? You just hope. You say okay. I
1: just. I think all all you can do is be as aware as of right. as you can. You know, as I'm reading email from our listeners, the the overriding sort of background theme is, you know, listening to this podcast has raised their level of awareness. Yes. They're yes. they're more aware of these things and it and. And it's changed their habits. I, you know, we don't want people to just disconnect from the net and, you know, go sit under a tree. Um, we don't, we don't want to keep them from doing the work they have to do. But there are, there are things you can do, like considering trying Firefox and NoScript and seeing how that works for you. Right. And, and knowing that, you know, you really do have more protection than if, you are, if you're just using IE with scripting turned on.
0: And it's important, even though there is no perfect protection, it's important to remember that some protection is better than no protection at all. You shouldn't just throw up your hands and say, ah, we're screwed and and give it up. You know, I I so often think as I'm
1: using my key in my front door, what a ridiculously poor security a lock and key are. But it's better than leaving your door unlocked. It certainly won't keep anyone from getting in if they want to. But again, you know, some is better than
0: none. Lance, oh no, it was Lance. Uh, Matt Ludlam in Weybridge, London has a few questions about stressing his socks. I've got sock stress. A a quiz, oh no, uh, Steve, love the show. The only one I listen to and learn from every week. Okay. One thought on the most recent Q&A. You mentioned that the latest versions of Microsoft's web server, IIS, have been hardened against some forms of TCP attack. My understanding is an application... Like IIS would pass information to the TCP stack and the TCP stack would then manage the lower level communication. Following on from there, if Microsoft hardened IIS, in effect, they'd be hardening the entire TCP stack. Ergo, we are all safe, are we? Obviously, my above conjecture must be wrong, but where? Does IIS have its own TCP stack in users mode? Does SOC stress pick up on areas that Microsoft has not hardened? Your thoughts... As always, eagerly anticipated. So he's saying basically, Microsoft says we've we've fixed IES, we've hardened it, and he's saying, but wait a minute, isn't it the problem at TCP? Yeah, I like the question
1: because I didn't really explain that very well when I talked about it before, and a number of, of our listeners had had written with similar sort of similar questions. Um, the the relationship between the TCP stack. And the applications that use it um, is is such that the 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 stack is sort of a service that the application uses. So a, a web server like IIS says, "I want to accept connections coming in on port 80," um, but I I'm not wanting to reinvent the wheel. TCP is a complicated protocol, so I want the operating system that I, IIS. running on to deal with all the messy details. I want to accept connections on port 80. I want to be notified when someone connects. I want to receive their data. I want to send them data but I don't want to have to worry about the bandwidth delay product. I don't want to worry about packet loss in the connection. I don't want to be... I don't just don't want to deal with any of those details. I want to be told when they connect, told when they disconnect, get their data, send them data. And so... The the so-called SOX interface, the socket interface, um, that the operating system creates is an abstraction of all of that, everything else that the TCP protocol deals with. So one problem, for example, that that I discussed when we were initially talking about SOX stress would be the idea of a, a client creating a connection and then stalling the connection by by saying that it had no available buffer space at its end to receive any data so the server would sit there and patiently wait for some buffer space to become available meanwhile that client could be creating connection after connection after connection doing the same thing building up this large number of stalled connections so so a an application that like iis but one that wasn't aware that this could be considered abusive would sit there and go oh look at all the people that want to connect to me isn't that nice <laughs> I, I wonder i wish i could send them something but none of them are willing to receive any data do, 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 and it would sort of sit there right waiting until somebody received data and and before that happened something would collapse the, the os would run out of space the, the stack would collapse the application. Wouldn't be able to hold any more connections. Something would just, you know, go wonky. So a smarter application, a hardened application, not necessarily the stack itself, but the application could be told, okay, look, we're not going to put up with this. If if lots of people are connecting, but no one is willing to have a send them, send, have us send them any data, we decide that's not okay. And so after 15 seconds of this, which is really, it should never happen for that length of time. Mm-hmm. Then we just say, okay, sorry, you had your chance and we hang up because the application can disconnect in the same way that the client can disconnect. So, so the idea is that the service using the stack, which, which inherently kind of creates the vulnerability by, op- by telling the stack to open the port and please accept connections, the service could be. hardened against these kinds of abuses where it inspects the like it inspects what's going on on those connections and becomes intolerant of behavior that technically is okay but unfortunately in the in the 21st century of of the internet can more often than not be indicative of abuse and so it says, "Uh, ah, you've had 15 seconds. You're still not giving getting any buffer space. Uh, look. So don't call back because if I can't send you anything, what's the point of hooking up to me anyway? Right. I don't and trust so you. I don't like up. you
0: anymore. Yeah.
1: And so 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 you know, that's a much better thorough description than I gave last time, but it does also tell you that while you might have IIS running on a server that is protecting itself you might also have an SMTP, an email server, running there, not protecting itself. Mm. So while port 80 might, on a given IP address, on a given server, might be invulnerable to a SOC stress attack, the attacker could sw- simply switch over to port 25, where SMTP is running, and you might have a, non- a non-stress-proof email server, which you could do the same thing to and bring things down so it is a per application solution unless the stack itself were hardened so either the stack could be hardened tcp stack or and doing that would protect all the applications um, on the system but it might be that there are some applications that would want to tolerate that kind of behavior for example you know one of the things that iis does as I mentioned, is if it sees a connection that's been held open for a long time and nothing going on, it'll close it. But TCP, the protocol, deliberately allows that kind of connection. That is, TCP, you don't have to have any packets go by for weeks, and then you can send something. And if as long as both ends still agree that there's a connection, that pack that, that data will go across the net and be received. So TCP, the protocol, allows for for you know infinitely long connections with no data transit. By definition, some things want that. Um, IIS can decide, uh, or or whatever hardened web server. Well, oh, you know, I'm not an application for the, where that make, makes any sense. We're going to shut those connections down. Mm. So you have to be careful if you harden the stack in a way that would break things that are making assumptions about tcp and you're changing those assumptions
0: all right makes perfect sense when you explain a it that answer. way yes as usual sheldon uh, smith in apple valley minnesota wonders why visa is not enough hi Stephen, leo let's talk about internet security and online shopping the two of you frequently mention paypal but paypal is tight with double click And recently, you mentioned Amazon is coming out with a competing online payment service. Google has one, too, as a matter of fact. My question to all this is, but but, but why do I need something else? Visa already provides online security, and uh, as you know, watches out for fraud, so I don't have to. I already have a Visa card. In fact, both my credit and checking account debit cards are associated with Visa. So why do I need anything but a Visa? Why, Why are Amazon, PayPal, and Google doing their own payment service? Even Amazon offers a Visa card. By the way, I started back around episode seven. I've listened to every episode so far. Steve, back when Leo first came up with the idea, who would have thunk this funny little podcast would still be going strong after four years? Great job, guys. Well, thank you. That's very nice, Sheldon. Uh, it's, I guess it's true. What? Why do we need other payment services?
1: Well, um, there are a number of reasons. Um, first, I like the idea of insulating myself and my not giving your credit be- card to a vendor. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, but one thing that Sheldon doesn't mention um, is it is a hassle losing your credit card. Right. I'm, when I say losing, I mean losing it onto the net. It's happened to me now three times, even though, you know, I'm Mr. Security now. I'm not giving my card out to to random people that I don't have to. I will say, however, I'm giving it out much less often now that PayPal allows me to generate a card on the fly. I'm I'm liking that and using that a lot more, because you know it'll allow me to to create a temporary card that is just there for one use and then I shut it down. Um. So so in my experience, what has always happened, and it happens that I'm a I'm a, a Visa card user. I don't know why I got onto Visa, but that's what I use. Um as i mentioned once on the show a few months ago i got a call from them saying hey somebody's using your card in france is is that anything that's <laughs> authorized i said uh, no no <laughs> um and so they said okay we didn't think so you know someone made a test purchase and they which they denied and then a big purchase and that was the trip that 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 tripped them up um and so i was protected so that was really nice
0: and, and uh, i have to point out that's something that you i don't think you get the credit card companies do it by law because they're required to by law. Yes. I don't think PayPal, Google payment or Amazon payment has that same requirement. Uh, I know in fact I know PayPal doesn't cuz I got <laughs> defrauded and unlike with a credit card where you just by law they have to they have to stand stand behind you. PayPal had to go through many hoops. And frankly I think if I hadn't escalated it to the office of the president I wouldn't have gotten my money back.
1: And for what it's worth I have heard that American Express is even more pro consumer. Yeah. American Express hey well, for they that. <laughs> yeah, they or. don't even they don't they don't even ask a question. Right. They just give, you know, put right. the money back on your card. Right. Um so so, so
0: credit cards by law are uh, the, you know the banking laws in this country require them to do that. Uh and some do better than others but uh I don't know, and maybe this is just a gap, and maybe the law' will fix it at some point, but I don't think they have the same, you have the same kind of protection with these payment services, so that might be a reason not to use one well, in my experience my i guess the,
1: the the point I wanted to make was that that while yes, you are protected from the the financial consequence of losing your card having it get loose on the net. You are not protected from the hassle of changing the number. I've got a bunch of things. You know, True. Amazon knows yeah. my card number. Yeah. I subscribe to the little little uh, toll road pod that deducts automatically from my card whenever it, the account runs low, and a number of things that that last time I I had my I lost my card and had to have the, the number changed. I was like, oh god, and okay. Now what now? What are all and my cell phone billing goes to my card and and all that kind of thing. So it really is annoying to have to change your credit card number um and and going through an intermediary that, that either doesn't use doesn't expose your card to the net or someone like paypal that allows you to generate a pseudo card for the purpose of doing a single transaction it prevents you from having that exposure
0: i guess what i'd like to see is the same requirements put on these payment services now, here's a question. If I use that one-time-only Visa number that PayPal gives you, I presume now I'm using a Visa card that I'm protected, right? Actually, it's MasterCard, MasterCard. In, the case, in the case of I, PayPal. I would assume that that gives me now those protections because I'm using a Master a, a PayPal credit card. Um, so let's see. So. so somebody else uses it again. It's not going to work. Yeah, but I'm just saying the fraud protection. Here's the deal. When you buy something with PayPal, if you get defrauded, oh. Yeah. it's it up to PayPal what they want to do about it. Not so with a credit card. If I use a PayPal credit card, I would presume, because now we're using MasterCard, that we are protected. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'd like to find that out. See, it's a trade-off, and what what I'd really like to see is the is the, the banking laws say, you payment services, you have the same requirements as a credit card has. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's go to New Jersey. Paul Corr in Trenton, New Jersey, was concerned and a bit confused about Skype quality and the need for port forwarding, which is something we do. We'll talk about it. I have a colleague in the UK. We use Skype to talk to each other. I decided to research best practices. Skype has a security page. I see connections point to point are encrypted to guard against man in the middle attacks. Unless the man in the middle is Skype, but we'll talk about that some other time. Mm. I see connections, important because it is a peer-to-peer network. I found a page on improving performance by using port forwarding, and I found my router setup details on portforward.com. After reconfiguring my router, I visited Shields Up to test vulnerability and found it failed due to ping exposure. I re-enabled block anonymous requests in the router admin screens, tested again, now it passed. I will return to Skype's preference for using dynamic port assignment rather than the explicit high port I set following the article of perf- on performance. So now I'm wondering, what is a best practice approach for Skype security? I did find the GRC page on that and saw that if one port forwards, it should be on an isolated machine. Any light you and Leo can shed would be appreciated. I found security now a while ago and returned to the archive of earlier podcasts until I caught up. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Paul. I'll tell you what I do, and you tell me if it's safe, Steve. I, uh, I have a dedicated port for Skype, 22222, two, 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 something like that. And I port forward from my router to that particular machine two 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 um so that uh, that is the only machine that incoming connections on that port can be accepted and that that's gives us better i think better skype results
1: yeah, there are a number of things going on here that are interesting and non obvious um that that Paul's question brings up first of all um I'm not sure what he did on port forward, but he says. That by re-enabling block anonymous requests, um, he w- was then able to get a of true stealth pass on on shields up. Port forwarding itself should not cause a shields up failure, um, especially on a high numbered port. Um, so what he may have done there 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 are two ways to enable unsolicited incoming traffic through a router there is port forwarding which you mentioned leo where you you specify a by you explicitly say i want this port number whatever it is to be forwarded to a specific ip behind the router to a, to a machine on an ip behind the router and then only traffic bound for that port will go to that machine the alternative means is something called a DMZ, the so-called demilitarized zone, which is what DMZ stands for. And that's an entirely different approach. That says allow anything unsolicited to be sent to a specific machine. Now, if you do that, shields up
0: will go nuts. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it'll, it'll be lighting up in red. Yeah, because DMZ is a pretty big cannon to use against this little gnat of a problem yes uh, if you're, you're opening that, everything um uh
1: yes now i should also mention though stepping back from both of these that the only time that this is necessary that any dmz or port forwarding is necessary to improve performance or call quality is in the event that both of the endpoints are behind NAT hostile routers. That is, it's, it's more the case these days that port forwarding won't buy you anything. You and I do it, Leo, because we absolutely positively insist on having a really good connection between us. It, and it happens that my NAT box is NAT hostile. It is not something that Skype is able to penetrate um remember that that Skype came from the um Skype was developed by the guys who did Nutella and and one of the Nutella technologies was very good NAT traversal right, where they right. where they came up with the idea of of how Skype central could could talk to both endpoints and arrange a direct connection between them
0: mm-hmm.
1: well that requires that one or the other of the of the NAT routers be be NAT tra- traversal friendly, which means it, it be predictable in the way it works. Mine isn't, so I had no choice but to but to statically map a port through my router. Huh. So what I would tell Paul is that one thing you can do if with no port forwarding established is to to use a program like Wireshark, a packet capturing program, which is actually pretty easy to use. It's, it's a nice program. It installs cleanly. And while you're, while you're talking to, um, to your friend uh, in the UK, take a look at the packet flow and see whether the, the UDP packets, which will be streaming out of your system, are going to his IP. That is that the IP that he currently has for his router or his internet connection. so and and that's a robust way of determining whether there's any relaying going on. The reason performance and call quality drops in some cases is that if Skype is unable to establish a direct point to point connection, it will use somebody else's machine. Who knows who? Somebody who's out on the net, who's not behind a firewall, it will actually relay traffic through a so-called Skype super node um, in order to still allow that connection to be to be connected. One of the ways that Google talk differs is that it doesn't use its customers machines as super nodes if it can't establish a nat traversal, a direct link between the, the two um, endpoints it will do the 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 traffic forwarding on behalf of that connection hmm. so it's not the case that you that you ever gain that you necessarily gain anything from doing port forwarding but but oftentimes you can and if you care about higher quality it does make sense to do that you do not need to use this DMZ mode, which, as you said, Leo, is – I mean, is really – it's easy to turn it on, but you're opening yourself up to lots of, of, of security problems. Because right. it, essentially, it's like putting that machine right out on the internet. Unsolicited traffic can all get to it. So so that's the case where you really want to make sure that that machine is isolated or – well, but but again, you don't need to do it. All you need to do is route a single port through to Skype – and then you tell Skype in the UI which port you 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 have sent to it and that will cause it to then route the traffic into you and also only one of you really needs to do that ah because if if one does it then then the other person is always able to initiate a connection out through their NAT no matter how hostile
0: their NAT right, may be, right. in through your forwarded port to your machine. I, so, I find it really uh, maybe it's voodoo, but it seems to make a difference. Oh, it's it's a good thing. It's yeah. better. I mean, we don't. Yeah, we probably because we have routers, we're never going to be a super node or use super nodes, right? No, that's the other nice thing is if you were if
1: you were to DMZ your machine, you would be exposing it to carrying uh-huh. Skype traffic from other customers. But if you if you use port forwarding, then you're not able to accept um, uh, supernode traffic.
0: Very, uh, That's very interesting. huh? On we go. More questions for you, sir. Hi, Steve, says Dave Greenland in Perth, Western Australia. Uh, I have just found out that my ISP, Telstra, is blocking port 25. They claim this will help eliminate spam through the port. I need to know how me using port 25 on my mail server affects Telstra, they claim that to overcome this issue, I need to register and pay $10 a month for a static IP address. Well $10 a month may not seem like much to U.S. internet users with their 25 gigabyte limits, ha ha, it's actually 250 gigabytes. It is an exorbitant amount since I already pay $99 a month for a mere 25 gigabytes, which by the way is upload and download combined. Is there any way I could change my SMTP port to still send mail from my mail server whilst using my dynamic IP address? I have this through DNS exit, which uh, periodically an application on my server checks my ADSL IP address and updates my DNS records to suit. This works great and is absolutely free. Thanks for any help you may be able to offer. I enjoy the netcast, though much of it is beyond me. Keep up the good work. It won't be beyond you for long if you keep listening, I promise.
1: Okay, well, there are a couple of things going on here. Um, so one of the things I've been expecting sort of for a long time, and I'm still expecting it, I can foresee the day where ISPs will simply drop incoming SYN packets incoming TCP SYN packets at their border it is so trivial to do and what that immediately does is it prevents any of their customers from being a service from from serving over TCP like over like, like the smtp protocol the simple mail transfer protocol on port 25 that david's talking about so
0: just just, just just i just want to make this this clear they're not talking about uh blocking port 25 to protect you from spam they're they're talking about blocking port 25 so that you can't send spam or some some zo- you know demon on your machine without your knowledge can can send spam this well, is a now, problem see, right that's the other question is
1: that there's when he says they're blocking port 25, it's not clear whether they're blocking traffic inbound to port 25 oh. or outbound to port 25. And, and both can be done. For example, many ISPs, um, in fact, I think Cox does it. For example, are the, the big cable modem company here in Southern California, many ISPs will block outgoing traffic to port 25 right right. because what that prevent because that prevents a client their customers from from sending traffic to other people's smtp servers right they allow you to only connect to their own isp provided smtp server for example in the case of cox i think it's it's west.smtp.cox.net you, so you have to configure your email client to send your outgoing email there and then they will forward it on. So that's blocking that's blocking outbound traffic with a destination of port 25, which is for for sending email to somebody else's, you know, s- sending email out to the Internet. Now, what David is describing is different, though. He's and, and it's it's. Further assured because he talk, they talk about registering and paying ten dollars a month to receive a static IP. What that's implying is that he would be he'd have a fixed IP, and they would then allow incoming traffic to his port twenty five for for his email server. And he talks about running his own email server. So so there. Normally, what, what you do is, you, of course, you use your ISP's email server. So, you know, your, your username at your ISP.com. And, and, and so email traffic coming into you goes to port 25 on your ISP's email server. And then your email client picks it up using POP uh, protocol or IMAP protocol. Um, in order to to obtain the email, which is sitting on your ISP's email server, what David is saying he wants to do. And and he's he's using a dynamic DNS service in order to keep a, his own domain pointing in his own machine, even though its IP may move around. He wants to run his own email server for whatever reason. So well and and for example, that way it could be, you know, David at DavidGreenland.com. For example, he'd be he would have his own domain that he's come up with. And so it's just sort of nice. He can, you know, he's got his own domain for his email. There might be a you know family or special interest or who knows what it is. So in this case, his his ISP is saying, ah, we're blocking incoming email on port twenty five unless you pay us money. You give you. We'll give you a static IP, and then you can run an email server. Mm. So, again, I'm at, at this point. That's a a less common thing to do. Now we are seeing other ports blocked. We're typically now seeing, um, for example, uh, as a consequence of the history of Windows vulnerabilities, we're we're seeing por- ports 135, 136, 137, 138, 139 are blocked. And often four, four, five, which are are all the Windows file sharing ports. Those are often blocked coming in to an ISP, which protects all their customers from the the you know traditional um, bad um, uh, Windows file sharing attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I wouldn't be surprised if. In the fullness of time, we see ISPs just saying, uh, eh, we're not going to let customers be services at all. You can be clients of the Internet. You cannot be services of the Internet a- unless you make special arrangements like, at this point, Telstra is doing with, with port 25 for somebody who wants to run their own email server. Right.
0: All right, well, that makes sense. Um, I think this isn't just Telstra. You're seeing this, as you said, most cable companies are now doing it. Comcast re- re- uh, res- resisted this for a long time. And people said, look, if you just block port 25, you're going to eliminate a lot of the uh, zombie spam that's coming out of your network. And they said, well, if we do that, we're going to get millions of dollars in tech support calls from people who suddenly whatever you know was set up isn't working. Uh, so they resisted for a long time. They finally did it. And I think it probably does make a big difference in the amount of spam that's being sent by, uh, not, not intentionally, but being sent by these zombies. Well, that again—that's
1: outbound port twenty-five. That's outbound, right? Right. Because because in or, in order for in order for people to send spam, they need to to send it to somebody's remote server. Now, you could certainly send spam to your own ISP; they'd get unhappy they very know. quickly.
0: They know exactly. Yes. What and, and they, what a lot of these zombie programs do is they actually put a, a, a an outbound mail server on the PC, an SMTP server on the PC, and right. for it to work, it uses port twenty-five. But you could use any port, right? Again, it uses outbound.
1: It's, it's sending outbound it's send, port yes. Yeah, it's Sending it's sending packets to somebody else's SMTP server, right. which is available and open on the net. And there, there are there are so called open relays, which are SMTP servers that will accept
0: email from anyone to anyone. Well, well, couldn't it? Just, what if I'm running an SMTP server on my machine, whether with my knowledge or not? Why would I need to go to another SMTP server? Wouldn't it just become a, an origination point for spam?
1: No, because, well, if you were running SMTP server on your machine, you would you would put your spam on your SMTP server. Yeah. Then it would need to forward it to somebody else's SMTP server in order to deliver that. Spam. Oh, I see. As part of the process. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I get it.
1: That's so cool. in that in that case, it would not be using probably an open relay. It would literally, for example, if you had spam bound for AOL, We'd just go right to AOL and AOL is going to accept it It say uh, it would a, look up. Yes, it, it would look up the so-called MX records, the the, the the mail exchange records, for the AOL domain. That would give it a whole list of IPs right. of AOL's SMTP servers. It would then, but those uh, the, uh, those would be listening on port 25. It would then connect to their to one of them on port 25, and start sending garbage right. to it. Right. But but in every case, that would mean that traffic would be egressing from the ISP. Bound for port 25, which the ISP and that's what ISPs have blocked. That's what they They've don't not, want. Yeah. Right. They, they, yes, exactly. There's no reason that they, their customers should need to be directly connecting to foreign SMTP servers. Their customers should connect to their SMTP server and then their server will forward it out to AOL, for example. in, in But the, that's what Dave is doing. He's running his own SMTP server. Well, no, he's receiving on port 25 which is different than sending to port 25. So he's running his own SMTP server because he wants to, he wants to support his own email domain. Right. And so, so allow people to send
0: email to, you know, David, dot Oh, okay. Well, because there are people who run SMTP servers for outbound mail purposes. Yes. Yes. I just thought and, that that may be what he was doing. Ah, uh, Okay.
1: And, but if he were,
0: then he wouldn't need. He wouldn't go
1: through the dynamic uh,
0: DNS ah, and you're all right. that. right. That whole point of that is so that you can get inbound stuff. You're absolutely right. right. Yeah, I get. Exactly. It. Yeah, I get it. Uh, I love this idea of blocking SYN packets.
1: Well, it's simple. It is so trivial. It's one command given to a router, essentially, and it would eliminate it, all of this stuff. Yes, it ends all incoming connections. What
0: would be the negative? all kinds of things would break (laughs) (laughs) things like things like uh, remote access things like that
1: well and and um for example i believe that skype uses tcp connections for its persistent connections i know that hamachi does right and so so skype uses udp as do as does hamachi for its for its bulk data transit but tcp is still often used on the other hand those are not incoming connections. Those are outgoing connections. Those are clients connecting to the Hamachi server right. or clients connecting to Skype. So um, it's not the case that most things that people are doing would be broken by simply disallowing incoming TCP connections. And I expect it in the future.
0: But it is exactly that issue that I talked about with Comcast saying, yeah, well, we'd like to do it, but we're gonna. it's going to cost us millions in people going, you broke XYZ, it was working.
1: Well, and remember too, Leo, we have seen instances, we know there are ISPs that are natting all their customers. Right. ISPs are running big nat boxes, and all of their customers are, are are receiving private IPs, not public IPs. Well, the fact that that's happening means none of those customers are able to receive incoming TCP connections or UDP for that matter, neither protocol, because they're, it's just like they're behind their own NAT router right, and, right. and their computers are being protected from incoming unsolicited connections. So it's certainly the case that ISPs are, are already not providing those services to their customers and apparently it's working.
0: Ian Clark in Sydney. We have a lot of Australian listeners. You ever notice that? Yeah. Ian Clark in Sydney, Australia wonders whether all solid state drives are created equal. Hi, Steve. Is a thumb drive of the new no moving parts solid state hard drive? Are those the same? Can they both read and write the same as a normal hard drive? What's their lifespan? Thank you. Oh, this is a good subject. It is. And um, I did a little, I
1: updated myself on the state of the art uh, a month ago because I decided I was going to splurge. When I did my little OQO machine, yes, and and have it configured with the 64 gig solid state drive, quite a splurge if you get a good one. Yeah, and I did, um, and so I wanted to find out exactly what was the technology going on. What you know, what was I paying so much money for? Because right. here you've got a 32 gig SD card. Why aren't two of those right. the same as one 64 gig solid state drive? you know, a full on SSD. Um, there are a couple things going on. Not all, first of all, the, the answer, are they all created the same? The answer is no. There is cheap technology. And in fact, I don't remember now what show it was of yours I was listening to, but I had uh, I had your Twit Live channel on in the background, Leo, and there was some discussion of multi-level storage yes. versus single-level storage. Yeah, SLC versus MLC. Uh, yes. 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 SLC is much more robust and much more reliable and more expensive because it is less dense. it only stores one bit in a single cell rather than multiple bits the mult- the way the way the m l s the multi level storage functions is it's literally they're not they're not bits where bit means binary digit you know that's what bit is a contraction of they're they're MIPS or <laughs> MIBITS or something. <laughs> there are they're are multi-level digits where the an analog value stored in this in the single cell is used to store several digits or several bits worth of data rather than just one. So the cell isn't storing a zero or a one, and you might think of that as like a voltage of zero or 10, for example, Mm -hmm. it might be storing 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. So it might store 8 different levels of voltage in a single cell that allows that cell to represent 3 bits of data. Well, while the advantage of that is that you get get 3 times the density, the problem is now you've got to be much more careful in distinguishing the voltage level—it's not just either you know zero or ten volts. Where you set a threshold, for example, at well, actually, you set a threshold generally low because if the cell discharges over time, you want to make sure you know that that it was a, it was once ten, but if it's zero, it's going to stay at zero. So, for example, you set a threshold of maybe two, and if it's if it's anything greater than two, you call it a one. And if it's anything less than two volts, you call it a zero. The problem with multi-level storage is you still have that uncertainty, but that, that means that you could have more problems because there is a cost of, and reliability of storing more bits in a single cell. The advantage, of course, is you get higher density and lower cost. So So solid-state drives that are needing to be high performance and high, highly reliable. They're not only universally single-level storage, so they're, much, they're, they're the most re- you can get in reliability. They also go to great lengths to do so-called wear leveling. That's the other thing that you need in a, in a high-quality thumb drive that will be missing from the cheapo thumb drives they give away now free at the cash register at Micro Center and Fry's and things. Those things, I mean, again, you get what you pay for. Um, what it means is that it's much easier to burn out spots in a highly used thumb drive that is not doing good wear leveling than than is possible in a thumb drive that has high quality wear leveling. Um, you, you pay more for it because there's more logic involved and it's just a higher cost solution. But in this case, you get what you pay for. Right.
0: We, uh, yeah, it was with Ryan Shroud of PC Perspective. In fact, we're going to do, start doing a little hardware show with him. He's great on Thursdays on uh, Twit Live. And so he, we were talking about, I was talking about the, the, Mac, the new Mac laptops, and it's very easy to r- remove the drive and put in a new solid straight drive. They only charge a few hundred bucks for, I think, 400 bucks for a 128-gig drive, and that's... Whoa,
1: whoa, 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 yeah, whoa. Yeah,
0: that's cheap. What? Yeah, well, and that's probably because it's SL, what, what is it, what, it, MLC, right? That's the cheap memory. Wait, who, Mac, Mac a- Apple. Apple, Apple for a premium. I think it was four hundred dollars. You can get the one hundred twenty eight gig solid state drive in there. Wow. But it's not a good. I mean, so Ryan was that saying really, the that, that, Intel is the best drive and that's twice as much for that. That's that story. Yes. Yes. And again, you're getting something for what you pay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm wondering what they're using in there. Um, obviously, they want to promote SSD drives. And I was very intrigued, but what I decided was I'm going to buy the solid, the regular hard drive. And when solid state drives come down in price, will they come in down in price? I think they will in a year or two, yes. right? And I heard, I heard you say that, Leo. I thought that was very smart. Simple thing you know. to pop it in. Yep. And then you get a big upgrade in uh, in uh, in value uh, for you know, you kind of have to give another year out of the, out of the thing. Yep, I think that's very smart. Now, coming up, we have the Wells Fargo Bank Login Insight of the Week. Seems to, be, <laughs> seems to be a regular feature of the show. The fun observation of the week and the big topic for next week. It's all coming up in just a bit. I do want to pause, though, and mention our friends at Astaro. Boy, we love Astaro. It wouldn't be security now if we weren't talking about Astaro.com. They make the incredible Astaro Security Gateway. We call it the ASG. This is the ultimate in uh, UTM, Unified Threat Management. If you are running a business, if you're responsible for securing your business, small, medium, or large, you need to know about Astaro. This is the device you want. Now, especially if you're a Cisco PIX user, end of life for the PIX. Astaro wants you to come on over. They've got a discount for you. Just call them up, 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O, the number four, and they'll give you a special upgrade. You can also call that number and get a free trial of the Astaro uh, ASG. Eight seven seven, the number four A S T A R O. That's one eight seven seven, four two seven eight two seven six. I mean, I've I've told you before what's in here. It's the best of breed in commercial and open source software for security. Of course, you get a VPN. You get uh, with SSL. You get uh, intrusion detection. You get built in encryption on your email with S MIME or Open PGP standards. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Three kinds of antivirus, content filtering. I mean, just this is what you need to lock it down. And I tell you, when we hear about corporations saying, "Well, whatever you do, don't do uh, forms," you know, I hope these guys, I hope these guys are at least using something like the ASG to protect you. Call them right now eight seven seven the number four astaro non commercial users. I encourage you to go to astaro.com slash security now. You could download it, put it on a beige box. They even give you what used to be a seventy nine euro subscription. To Astaro, up-to-date, absolutely free. You can try it at home for free as a non-commercial user. Uh, there, there's a VMware appliance you can try it. If you're a commercial user, of course, you gotta you got to pay for it, but I, w- I want you to try it for free at least to get an idea of what it'll do for you. 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. We love the Astaro Security Gateway. I use one here, and uh, I'll tell you, it's I, I'm, I'm a believer. astaro.com We thank them for their support. Steve, are you ready for one more Wells Fargo? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's so funny. We, this all, should we, should we give people the background? If you haven't been listening, this all started with one email from a guy who's a Wells Fargo uh, online customer who said, hey, it's ignoring, you know, it's chopping off the extra five characters or whatever in my password. It seems to be case insensitive. Is this secure? And then we've been going back and forth ever since. Here's the latest from Gary Warner. He's the director of research for the University of Alabama Computer Forensics. This guy ought to know in Birmingham, Alabama. Man, we got smart listeners. He says, Steve, sorry, I'm far behind on my listening, so only now getting to the September 11th broadcast. That's the one we talked about, Wells Fargo. But I wanted to comment that banks still run on mainframes. Mainframes have been accepting user IDs and passwords since the 60s. Many web apps and banks are just front-ending mainframe applications. And it is, it is the problem uh, that some many mainframe systems can't have user IDs or passwords longer than eight characters. In some cases, seven characters. It's also not possible on these same systems to have a case-sensitive user ID. Everything's uppercase! Recall again that some of these systems were implemented before we even had shift keys on computers. I just thought you'd get a kick out of that. What you describe is actually quite common for front-ended mainframe applications. I'm listening to Security Now! tonight on my iPod while my computer forensics students at UAB take their midterm exam. I bet he's a great teacher, Gary Warner, Director of Research, University of Alabama, Computer Forensics in Birmingham. Thank you, Gary.
1: And it's certainly the case. It's that, true that you know the way a lot of these systems have been moved onto the web is it a front end, you know, GUI like uh, application is still talking to you know really old traditional technology on the back end and you know basically you know somebody was given the job of of you know we got to get online darn it get us online immediately and so someone glued together some you know a a web surface but it's still talking to the same database technology on the back end
0: yeah um i know that because when i first started using my bank of america online banking i think i might have mentioned this it was white text black screen all uppercase you know, you enter a menu item, one, two, three, or four. Now, this was the 80s. Uh, but I bet you, I wouldn't be surprised it's still the same mainframe behind the scenes, doing all the same things. You know, I mean, it works. <laughs> why, why, why mess with it? Brian Voller in Ashland, Oregon, brings us the fun observation of the week. Happy DVD day. Greetings, Stephen Leo. I just wanted to drop you a line of congratulations, acknowledging the passing of a significant milestone in your program. All of your episodes will now no longer fit on a single DVD. <laughs> As I type this, I am able to archive episodes 1 through 164 for mandatory distribution to security deficient family and friends. Oh, my goodness. I hope, they, I hope they're geeks. Boy. Note that while I've been saving the high quality version, a bit of math reveals that the lower quality version should fill a DVD just after January 2019. Was With episode 692, assuming you keep to your current schedule. And if I know Steve, we will. <laughs> uh, that's cool. So we've passed, I guess, 4.7 gigs worth of Security Now episodes at 64 kilobits a second. Yep. And in fact, uh, we're not even filling up your hard drive shelf very quickly at that pace, Leo. No, look, at, I've got, you know, we better hurry up. I've got three 750 gig drives so far. We do, we get about two weeks. And this is video, you know. The video that I'm saving is 10 gigabytes an hour, Yeah, and still just three drives for the three months we've been running. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Pretty amazing. And finally, Matt Bender, Madison, Wisconsin, with the big topic for next week. Hi, Stephen Lee. I'm relatively new to the Security Now ahem, netcast, and find it very informative and entertaining. As an IT professional, the topics you cover are very relevant to my daily activities. The show on sock stress was extremely interesting and well scary to say the least. I I feel the same way. I've been following another possibly even more scary exploit called clickjacking. I'm sure you must know about this so I'd love to hear your views about it. Keep up the great show, Matt. Thank you, Matt. We yes, talked about it, clickjacking, didn't we? We
1: well, you and I never have. No. Nope, we've not talked about it here. It's been on my radar for some time and it is as as Matt suggests important and potentially even more scary. Many people feel it is more scary um, than many of the other things we've been talking about. It's been in the news, uh, the security news a lot lately,
0: mm-hmm. and we will cover it in detail and in depth oh, good. next week. Oh, good. This is, this is one. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about it. I've been uh, testing stuff and seeing how it works. I'd be very interested to know how it works and uh, what we can do about it. Besides running no script. I think it's wow. always I was just going <laughs> to say it. <laughs> it all comes down to running no script. <laughs> hey, Steve, always great to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time on Security Now. Talk to you then, Leo. Bye. Security Now.